Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have written 35 cookbooks, including Vegetarian Dinner Parties, a cookbook all about how to make dinner party-worthy food that is vegetarian and vegan, as well as A La Mode, a book about pairing ice creams with desserts. A La Mode was surely one of my favorite books ever until it destroyed our septic system, but that's a whole (laughs) different matter. Don't throw that ice cream down the septic system, kids. But this show is not about any of that. Instead, spring is in the air, and we're going to talk about buying a grill. Maybe you're in the market for a new grill. We'll talk a little bit about uh, something to watch out for or to pay attention to when you buy a new grill, one specific issue. And we're going to do this in two parts. So next week, come back again and we'll talk more about grills. We've got a great interview coming up, a one-minute cooking tip, and not only all that, what's making us happy in food this week. So we're going to start out with our grill buying guide, and this is part one. So what are we talking about? Well, first I want to talk about the fact that my dentist actually had a copy of A La Mode. You mentioned A La Mode. Oh, and he was working in my nice. mouth last week. It's always nice to have, a, have books that <laughs> that send people to the dentist that rot their teeth out. And he said, you know, before you were even my patient, my wife and I had copies of all your ice cream books and I didn't even know you. Wow. So, isn't that I love nice. that Alamo book. Uh, Eric Metzger shot the, the photography for it. It's beautiful. It's super moody ice cream photography. <laughs> we shot it on very dark walnut wood surfaces. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. And it's perfect for summer. I love that book. But, but, okay, we're not going to talk about that. No, we're talking about grill. grill. So you have to make... A fundamental decision when you're buying a new grill. Okay, this is our this part is one. Fundamental. It is. Gas or charcoal. It is the big decision. And I'm going to start off with what I think here. Okay, so this is what I think. I am the writer and Bruce is the chef. And this is what I think. Charcoal equals guilt. <laughs> Every single time. So but, every time I say I'm going to take charcoal out, he goes, "Oh no, you don't have to do that. Don't do that." <laughs> but every time we eat, then he goes, "Oh, thank you for doing that." Yeah, it's true. I, listen, I, the, the, you know, I mean, Bruce does it. We have both kinds of grills, and Bruce doesn't always bring out the charcoal grill. But when he does, you know, we bought a porterhouse that we're going to split, or um, he's doing something really special on the grill and so he's like oh i'm gonna do this over wood and for me that always equals oh no he's doing too much work so the point is here that charcoal is more work it is more work and let me say i'm just gonna say this right in front about charcoal if you choose to use a charcoal grill yeah. and that's the direction you're going like the old kettle grills any kind of charcoal grill the kettle grill a barrel grill whatever it is buy good charcoal like the briquettes yeah. are just compressed ground up charcoal you want to use real hardwood charcoal it doesn't cost that much more and you can often find it on sale but you want to have the flavor of the wood and the flavor of that is so much better than the flavor of the briquettes and don't light them with lighter fluid because then you're just tasting yeah. lighter fluid, okay, lighter we, with a chimney. I want to come back to this because we often say this, and uh, we have actually written some grilling books, and we used to write a lot for Weber Grills, and we used to do a lot of grilling work in our life, not so much anymore, but we used to. Okay, and I want to say that we always had this mantra, and I'm, the mantra was, and Weber didn't like this mantra so much, but still, the, the mantra was spend less on a charcoal grill and more on the charcoal that goes in it and spend more on a gas grill. Mm-hmm. So up your game. If you're going to spend money yeah. and you're going to buy a gas grill, then up your game on grill. the gas yeah. grill. For And we'll talk about why that is in a minute. But the charcoal grill, it really, so much of it comes down to the charcoal that you use. Bruce bought 
hardwood charcoal for porterhouse steaks a while back, and there was just no comparison. I mean, there's just absolutely no comparison to what goes on. And so which should you get? Should you get gas or charcoal? Well, my, my first answer to you is going to be if you have the room and you have the budget, buy one of each. <laughs> And get okay. yourself a high-end gas grill and get yourself an inexpensive but kettle sturdy. grill. But sturdy. A sturdy one. Sturdy because there will be times when you want both. But let's say you only want one. It is going to come down to a matter of preference in terms of you have to weigh convenience, that's the gas, yep. versus flavor, that's the charcoal. It's true. And you know that there are charcoal grills out there now with gas starters. And they always freak me out slightly. I mean, Bruce has one. And it always freaks me out slightly because I always think about that butane can right next to those charcoals. Well, it's not right next. It's on the other side of the cart. <sighs> it always <laughs> makes me crazy inside. And I don't go outside for fear that I'll see the garage blow up into the air. So I don't go anywhere near that thing. And we should also say, while we're saying that, while I just made that joke, we should also say, of course, you know, you never grill indoors. If it is raining... You take that grill outside anyway, and you grill in the rain if you must grill. You never grill inside. Okay, anyway, so what kind of, what, what should you look for in, okay. these kettle, in, in kettle grills or in gas grills? Well, let's start with the, with the charcoal grill. Let's say you want to go that route. I know we said you don't need to spend as much money, but you can spend a little bit and get your money's worth. There are kettle grills that are built into rolling carts yeah. that have little butane cans in the carts and yeah. you push a button and a flame shoots up under the charcoal. You leave it on for two or three minutes and your coals are beautiful. You don't need to do that. It's a nice convenience. You can just get yourself an inexpensive kettle. Look, last summer when Mark's dad was in hospice, I went down to Texas with them and I bought a little 13 inch kettle grill that was tiny it tiny looked like a grills. barbie grill i mean it yeah. was tiny but it was and enough it load you know you know what i'm talking about it's low to the ground it's like three inches off the ground five inches off the ground it's tiny but i paid 39 dollars for it and we set it out in mark's parents backyard and yep. i was able to grill fish and steaks for mark for me and his mom and his dad while his dad was still eating and the four of us got dinner off that grill for a couple of weeks yep. as we yep. as we went my, through that my whole dad process only really eat at the end and he ate grilled fish, grilled bass. That's what he was eating right before he quit eating and then died. He was eating grilled bass. And that little grill, uh, it performed beautifully. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I know when my brother went down after dad passed and then my brother went down to stay with my mom, uh, that he also used that grill. I mean, it was it was just this easy thing that sat out in, in the backyard. And it was easy to fire it up with charcoal and you know, have a grilled meal. But you also have the problem of a charcoal grill that you get great flavor, but you have to deal with the ashes, right? You're yeah, going to you're gonna have to wait till it cools and scoop the ashes out and get rid of it. So again, you can get yourself a small one, a big one, you don't have to spend a ton of money, or you can get a nice feature like a gas starter on it. Now, the nice thing about a gas grill is you don't have a mess you don't have any charcoal to clean up. You do have to, they're not maintenance free. You do have to clean them once you in a while. Do. We have one and twice a year I take it apart and I scrape out the grease and I clean it. And it's let me also disgusting. say that if you have a gas grill that is hardwired to your house, ours is, our, our gas grill is hardwired to our propane tank on our house. Those connections must be checked for safety reasons once a year at a minimum. It's important to keep your gas grill maintained. People think somehow that a gas 
gas grill equals no maintenance. That is not true. It is easier because you don't have to mess with starting it and mess with cleaning the ashes out, as Bruce said. But there's still maintenance issues on them. There are maintenance issues with them. And also, if you do like we did, we have a hose that goes from the gas grill to a connection on the house. Make sure you shut that when you're done. You, the last thing you want is a problem to happen where your entire propane yeah. goes. You shut it off. I mean, you, well, you shut it off every time you finish grilling, right? You I shut do. it off to the house. I'm afraid it comes out of the propane tank I do. the house. Now, yeah. Mark said you want to spend more money and buy a better end grill if you're getting a, a, gas, grill. a gas grill. And he's right about that because the better materials and the better made grills will yep. last a lot longer. Yep. We've got one where you know all the gas line pipes are made of stainless steel, not yep. aluminum. Yep. And uh, the whole thing is so solidly made. We've had it for about 12 years. I clean it twice a year. You want it to be heavier. Mm -hmm. You want it to be of better materials. You want to make sure in a gas grill, this is really crucial, that you can turn on certain ranks and turn off certain yep. ranks. That's really important because a lot of things, what you want to do, of course, is sear it and then move it over to the side of the heat so you can cook on, as they say, indirect heat, or the other way around. You cook for a while on indirect heat, and then you pull it over over the flame Ooh, itself. The, that's called then, the reverse sear. And that is, and then you <laughs> sear it right before you serve it. So you want to make sure that it has multiple, like in the industry term is ranks, multiple ranks. And I know it's a really hard decision. That There are people who, it's their identity. They're like, Char we have these friends who live out in the Hamptons almost full time, and John is great, and he loves to grill, and he's always been a charcoal grill guy. And every time we go out there, he grills us steaks, he grills us lobsters. And the thing is, John's wife wanted a gas grill so that she could cook every now and then because she didn't want to start messing with charcoal. And for years, he was like, nope, nope, we can only cook in charcoal. And eventually, he broke down, and now actually John has both, which I think is the ideal solution. He has gas, and he has charcoal. It is. I mean, you know, it's charcoal when it's worth it, gas all the other times. For example, for example, I love fish over charcoal, but honestly, you don't have to drag out a charcoal grill to, to grill a nice piece of trout or salmon because that works on a gas grill really well. And the ideal world, of course you have both, but let me just also say, again, let me just repeat, spend more money than you would think on a gas grill, get a better gas grill, go up in quality in a gas grill, look for heavier materials, more ranks, consider that a, budge, a bit of a budget buster. A charcoal grill, make sure it's sturdy, but don't you don't have to get every bell and whistle imaginable. You can spend down on it and instead spend your money on the charcoal. Make sure you buy really good charcoal because that's Hard the point. wood charcoal. That's why you're buying that grill is for flavor. So don't buy cheap briquettes. Don't no, buy no. really good hardwood charcoal no. for that grill you bought. And I do not agree with Hank Hill. Now, if you don't know Hank Hill, King of the Hill, was an, <laughs> it's a cartoon. It's, it's an animated series comedy. And Hank sells propane and propane accessories. And his motto is, taste the meat, not the heat. Well, no, I want to no. taste the heat. And that's what's wrong with that show. Because I'm from Texas. And in Texas, we want to taste the heat and the meat. I mean, it's called barbecue after all. So <laughs> what can I tell you? Um, Hank Hill is wrong. Uh, I want to taste both, which is why charcoal grills are great. Gas grills are great, too. Next week, we're going to talk about all kinds of features you can look for, including a way that you can get a smoky taste out of a gas grill. But that's in our next podcast next week. And in order to get there, please subscribe to this podcast. 
please make sure that you're subscribed so that you don't miss a week of cooking with Bruce and Mark. We are so glad you're on this journey with us. Thank you very much. If you have it in you, please uh, rate the podcast and even drop a comment. That would be fabulous. Thank you very much for doing that. And we're on to segment two. Our patented, as I said, patented, we patented it, didn't you know? Our patented one-minute cooking tip. Okay, so what is it this week? When you are cooking on a grill, and I don't care if it's gas or charcoal, you need to oil the grill grates. Mm. The tip mm. is to oil up a paper mm. towel mm. and use long-handled tongs mm-hmm. to oil the grill grates. Mm-hmm. Never, ever, 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 ever take nonstick spray and spray it into a lit grill. And also, may I say that in this case, and this case only, you do not want to use nonstick safe tongs because you will get that plastic coating near the grill and it will melt. We're talking old-fashioned metal tongs that are metal through and through. As Bruce says, get long-handled ones. You put the oil on a piece of, I don't know, a big wad of And not much oil. You don't want the oil dripping down because that's going to cause a fire. And just enough so you can get a nice little coating on your grill grates and then you could throw that away and everybody's happy okay that's our one minute cooking tip up next bruce's interview with jessica formicola she's the author of the new cookbook beef it up she's a beef maven and they're going to talk all about the right kind of cuts the right kind of beef buying guide everything you want to know about beef jessica formicola up next with bruce Today, I'm speaking with Jessica Formicola, the creator of the food and lifestyle blog, Savory Experiments. Jessica's recipes have appeared in Parade, The Daily Meal, Mashed, and Better Homes and Gardens. She has a new cookbook out called Beef It Up, 50 mouthwatering dinner recipes for ground beef, stews, roasts, and salads. I can't wait to jump in and talk about meat. Welcome, Jessica. Hello. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So beef is such a huge subject to wrap your head around. And as you state in the preface of your book, there are far more cuts of beef than there are of chicken or pork. But all those choices scare people and they stay away from it. So what advice do you have for someone who avoids the beef counter because the choices seem overwhelming? Well, first thing is you're not alone. They are overwhelming. And I think that even the most seasoned home cooks and chefs sometimes look at the variety of beef available and go, what in the world am I looking at? And what in the world am I going to buy? And the other thing is, is that they don't always have the same name. Depending on where you are geographically, the same cut can have a completely different name. But there is no shame in Googling and there is no shame in asking the butcher. It is perfectly okay, especially if you can't find the cut that was listed in the recipe. If your recipe was written in California, where tri-tip is really popular, you might not be able to find that out on the East Coast, and you need a swap. And not all cuts of beef are cooked the same for the best results. So most people try to swap out what looks like a similar size cut or thickness of cut, and that might not be the best way to do it. So make sure you ask your butcher, and that is probably the best answer, or Google. Google's your best friend. So we've convinced people to go to the meat counter now. They're going to talk to their butcher. They're going to pick up some beef. What are some other tips when shopping besides talking to the butcher? I think it goes without saying, but avoid meat that's dry. If it looks dry, it probably is dry. And meat regardless of what kind you're picking up, beef or chicken or pork or even seafood, should not look that way. 
Butchers are typically really good about rotating stock. So like other things you kind of pull from the back to get the freshest item. Meats, they typically only have six or seven packs, even less out of each type of cut. So they rotate fairly well, but you can still look at the packaging date. It's not required that they put a packaging date on it, but most of them will. And it can be in a kind of discreet place. And sometimes it's not even labeled packaging date. It'll just be kind of two numbers on a little sticky. But you again, ask your butcher, when were these cut and when were these prepared? And my butcher is always happy to cut me a fresh piece if I need one. So again, make best friends with that, that person. They are going to be a key element in making the best meals because you've got to start with great ingredients to make stellar meals. So there's a lot of talk about prime meat versus other kinds of meat. We know it costs more. And so we all assume prime meat should be the best. Can you tell me why it costs more and why it may or may not be the best choice? Well, prime meat costs a lot more because of the life cycle of the the cattle that that is going into making it. There's a different genetic stock for a prime cow, and it is generally a younger animal. It has more marbling in it. It's fed a different diet. Typically, it's higher in corn, starches and and carbs, we all know, help us bulk up a little bit more. And in prime meat, we have this excellent marbling. Instead of looking for ribbons of fat, we've got these kind of little striations through the meat, and that melts and makes it super tender, as well as it being young. Older cattle just aren't as tender as, as young cattle. So there's a lot more that goes into the raising of that cattle from conception to heading to market. But prime is, and prime is great, don't get me wrong, I love a good prime steak, but it's not all you need to look for when you're cooking at home. This book is about making sure that the average person can eat beef and not spend $86 on a New York strip steak. Choosing something that's a choice or even a select, depending on the recipe and depending on the cut, isn't a bad idea. And even yesterday, I was making a chuck roast, um, good old-fashioned pot roast, and they labeled the the Uh, chuck roast, the tender chuck roast at the store with select and choice, which I found odd. Usually you don't even find that on that kind of cut of meat, but it was one instance where if it were labeled prime, I would not pay the extra money for that. Depending on the cooking method, all of those elements just aren't necessary. And there are so many ways to make a select cut of meat or a choice cut of meat still taste amazing and still be tender and flavorful and really accentuate the dish without spending the extra dollars. So how are select and choice different from prime? Select is going to be one one section down from prime. It's kind of the middle of the road. It's your average cut of meat, I think, for most people. It's a little bit less marbled, but still has some marbling. And then we're going to go with choice that's a little bit less marbled, maybe a little bit of an older cow. These all get labeled when the cow goes to market. They're individuals that do this for a living. And the 
other interesting thing is they actually mark the entire cow. They don't just mark it by each slice of meat. And as we all know, with our own personal bodies, things can change from one piece of body to the other. So you might actually find that there's a cow that got labeled select or choice that a different cut of meat might look more along the prime lines. So really look at that piece of meat and check out the marbling and, and the fibers yourself. And you might get lucky and find some outliers for a cheaper price point. You talk about something in the book that made me super excited to see, and that's recipes that call for people to cook meat at room temperature. A lot of cookbooks say to do that. Tell me why they do that and tell me why it's nearly impossible to do safely. Oh gosh, this is one of my sticking points too. I famous chefs, I see it all the time. Let your this was one I read the other day. Let your steak sit out for 20 minutes to come to room temperature. Well, it's physically impossible for your steak to come to room temperature in 20 minutes, especially if you've got like a good thick cut of steak. But it also doesn't make as much sense. I think there's this myth that you're going to shock the meat or you want it to all be one temperature all the way through. And quite frankly, when it comes out of the refrigerator, it is all one temperature all the way through. If you let it sit, it actually becomes two different temperatures. But it's also going to become two different temperatures once you start to cook it. Just naturally speaking, unless we're using a method like sous vide, which is not in our book, our book is more about easy weeknight meals and things your average home cook could do in the kitchen, you're going to change the temperature of the outside before the inside with any kind of heating method, whether you're browning it in, in cast iron or you're putting it in the oven. So it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And the other thing is, is that the FDA doesn't suggest any cut of meat being out for more than two hours. And majority of meats are going to need three to four hours to be fully room temperature and get the chill off from a properly chilled refrigerator. So just from a safety standpoint, it doesn't make sense. But I'll tell you, I'm a girl who likes my steaks rare. So having a cold center on a nice pan seared steak or a steak on the grill actually makes it easier for me to get my desired doneness. Many recipes ask you to brown meat before you put them in a stew or a braise. We know it makes it pretty. We know it adds caramelization to the outside of meat. It adds flavor. You've got some great how-to browning tips. Share some with us. Gosh, browning is one of those epiphany moments that I had as a home cook that I was like, oh my gosh, it's a whole new world. When, and now I brown recipes that don't even call for browning. It is a great way to add flavor and a little bit of acidity to any recipe, whether it's beef or vegetables, chicken, pork, whatever it may be. But the key is to make sure that everything is really dry. I think that that's where people go wrong. When they say, blot it with a paper towel, make sure it's dry, even as much as letting it sit in the refrigerator uncovered so that the chill of the refrigerator dries the surface, the surface needs to be super dry to get that nice brown sear on it. If there's any sort of liquid, you're going to end up steaming it instead of searing it. I also like to very liberally, and you saw too that I really enjoy salt, very liberally salting my meat, which also helps that exterior surface dry out. Another tip is to not crowd the meat in the pan. All too often home cooks look for the size of pan that's going to just fit what they need instead of using something larger. And when items 
anything are too close together in the pan, you're going to steam them, even if you got them super dry, instead of let the air circulate around the exterior. That's really what you need. You also need super hot heat. And I love a good seasoned cast iron pan. I think I've got got several of them, whether they're enamel or like old school, I'm cooking you over a campfire. And they're great too, because I don't need to add a lot of oil to them. I don't want to add too much oil that's going to mess with your browning. And if you've got something that's really seasoned and nonstick, that's going to help you get that nice sear too. All right. And go back to salt, which you just mentioned, you dedicate two pages to salt in your book. What's the difference between salting your meat before and a finishing salt after? I think that salt is one of those things people are scared of. And all too often they're used, people, home cooks are using the wrong salt for the wrong reasons. Salting in cooking can serve several different purposes. We could be accentuating natural flavors. We could be doing a dry brine to try and make the meat we're cooking with more juicy and tender and flavorful. And we could be trying to dry it out like we would for brown Typically for cooking, I use a coarse kosher salt, not a fine salt and not a table salt, which can be iodized and have a metallic aftertaste. You find the cleanest, well, less salty salt is a coarse kosher salt versus a finishing salt, which is going to add texture. I love that little bit of crunch that you get when you freshly sprinkle like a maldon um, or, or just any kind of flaky sea salt really over the top of a piece of meat or, or a dish. And it also gives you these little salty pops of flavor. So they really serve two different purposes and you can certainly use both in the same recipe. So you talk about different kinds of finishing salt. Where would you use a white flaky Malden salt versus a crunchy pink salt versus a black salt? I will use flaky Maldon sea salt on almost everything because I am a crazy salt person, but I, <laughs> um, I think it's the most all purpose. If somebody is going to go out and purchase a finishing salt, I think that one is the one that's cheaper on the budget, but also can serve the most function. It can do everything from a salad to chicken, to beef, to, I served my non on potatoes last night. It can do just about anything, but something like a pink sea salt Mine is a Himalayan pink sea salt. It's a little bit grainier, a little bit more like a sandy texture. I use that more on fish and chicken, but you can certainly use that on beef as well. And I think of as a black salt more on a steak, getting fresh off the grill or out of a pan, as we're going to talk about, and sprinkling just a little bit on. It's also just pretty. Having a red sea salt, a black sea salt, it's visually appealing. And when you're making these really nice fancy dishes at home, you want them to have that restaurant quality, adding a sprinkle of salt and a sprinkle of color, even if that's just a little bit of chopped parsley along with the salt is going to elevate the dish immediately because we first eat with our eyes before it ever touches our mouth. Okay. That's got my mouth watering. So let's talk about some of the delicious recipes in your book. Of course, as we expect, you've got great stews and chilies. They look divine, but what caught my eye first there's a chapter on salads, not something you instantly think about in a book about beef, but you've combined meat and veggies in a way that's amazing. From your lemony Brussels sprout salad made with thinly sliced skirt steak to your chopped beef salad with spicy peanut satay, 
How do you decide what cut of beef to pair with what vegetable? I love this question. People don't usually associate steak with salad unless it's like a typical steakhouse lunch meal and they're getting a bachelor steak and blue cheese and it's the standard. But steak is a wonderful protein for salads. A lot of these cuts could be used interchangeably. They're a lot more budget friendly than some of the other things. A flank steak you could use. It's juicy cut against the grain. It needs a, just a quick dry heat. We can use a skirt steak, which again, is great for, for salads because they're easy to chew. It's thin. And I think that that's what I was aiming for the most is having a balance between flavor and fat content, which we like in beef because it adds all of that juiciness and flavor, but also being able to not fight with your meat. Cause I think we've all been there where we've gotten a taco or a salad or something and had wrestled with it a little bit. So the goal here was really to find cuts that would be easy to eat, but also accentuate the vegetables they went with and focus on the fact that not all salads have to just be a bed of leafy greens. We can use all different types of things as a base for a salad and make them interesting and fun. You have a recipe for steak, which of course we expect in a book on beef. You call it life-changing pan-fried steak. How can a pan-fried steak be just as delicious, if not even better than one made on the grill? So I've always found this funny because most people associate steak as being cooked on a grill. And this is not to diminish it. I love a nice charred steak as much as the next person. But when we go to fancy steakhouses, which we also associate with a really good steak, the chef is not out back turning over your New York strip on a Weber over charcoal. He's using a pan or a broiler or, or sometimes a charbroiler in the kitchen. And I think that the life-changing part of it is the epiphany moment where you realize a really good steak can be made super fast on your stovetop and doesn't have to include the grill. And it can have just as much flavor. So here again, I use a really nice cast iron pan, well seasoned, because the trick is getting that nice brown onto the side of the steak, seasoning it really well, getting a nice brown on it. For me and my rare self, it only takes a couple of minutes per side. My husband would say one minute. He's a black and blue kind of guy, but you know, we um, a couple minutes per side, and then a really good compound butter. I think that's the other place people go wrong is they use the butter for the lubricant in the pan, not realizing that there's a smoke point and then it burns. It really should be used as a finish at the very end basting it over the top of your steak after it's been removed from the heat and then used for serving. And that's where you're going to get the maximum amount of flavor and quite frankly, a life-changing pan-fried steak. Jessica Formicola, thank you for spending a few minutes and sharing these delicious tips, the recipes in your new book, Beef It Up, 50 mouthwatering dinner recipes for ground beef, stews, roasts, and salads. Great. Good luck with the book. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Bruce. That was a great interview. It makes me want to eat even more steak than I eat. And you know that I love to eat steak all the time. Bruce knows that if anybody says to me, what do you want for dinner? My answer is always, can we have steak? It's like, it's like my go-to dinner. It's my go-to fancy dinner. Uh, I can't help it. It's just who, who I am. I love steak. I love steak. It's my Steak's Texas my favorite soul. thing. Yeah. So <laughs> love steak. check out Jessica Formicola's cookbook wherever books are sold on Amazon, any place like that. And now... 
out to our last segment of this podcast segment for what's making us happy in food this week. I went last week first, so now it's your turn to go first. <laughs> this is re- I probably say this every year when we do this at this time of year, but Satsuma oranges oh, are my favorite they thing. Are They're making so me so good. happy. They're these tiny little mandarins that, you know, some of them are like the size of golf balls, and mm. they've just come into our local supermarket. Mm. Aren't they named for a senator from Arizona, Senator Satsuma or something like that? Isn't that right? <laughs> and unlike Senator Satsuma, these are sweet. Oh. And they are like candy. They're so sugary and sweet, and usually they're seed-free. They're, oh, Satsuma, little tiny Satsuma. Years ago, we had befriended at someone, I don't remember who it is now, but he oh, it was a farmer in California online. Oh, yeah. And he and his wife had a farm, and they grew yeah. Satsumas and sold them. And he sent us a big box of them right off the tree, and all oh, they were the best, and I fell in love with them right then and there. Yep. And my thing that's making me happy in food this week is a recipe from our book, Vegetarian Dinner Parties, which Bruce recently made. And it's a recipe for a salad made with, and get this combo, grapefruit and fennel. And I know that you might think, oh, wait, my brain hurts to try to put grapefruit and fennel in the same moment. But let me tell you, this salad is genius. You want to talk about what that salad involves? So you shave fennel real thin. I use a mandolin. We just had this at a dinner party, and I loved it. And you take two fennel bulbs, and you shave them real thin and spread them out on a platter. And then you take two grapefruits, and you supreme them. And if you don't know how to do that, Google it and watch a ton of videos. Basically, you have to get all the segments out without any of the pith and any of the membranes. Mm -hmm. Scatter those over the top. Peel and seed some avocados and scatter some avocado slices. And then you make a shallot white wine vinaigrette with pistachios and you sprinkle that. So, over so the top. just hold that all in your head grapefruit, fennel, avocado, pistachios. It's so unusual it's and so refreshing and so delicious. We put it out on the table with other things at a dinner party. And honestly, it was the thing that was all eaten down. And it made me very happy. It's a recipe, again, in our book, during Dinner Parties. But I'm not hawking that book. I'm just telling you that this wild combination of pistachios, avocados, grapefruits, and fennel is just brilliant. Okay, that's our podcast for this week. So... What do we always say? We ask you to go to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, and join the group, join the fun, Mm -hmm. and wherever you get your podcasts from, leave us a comment. Leave us a review. We love reviews. That would be great. And we will be back next week with the second half of our buying guide for grills, accessories that you might want to consider upping the budget for, and more great cooking and food tips. See you then.